Um, this morning we'll be in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you, we'll begin an expositional series next week, Lord willing, on the Gospel of John, which will prove to be a, a pretty long series, I'm sure, verse by verse, uh, paragraph by paragraph through that great book as we think about the person and work of Christ and our task in, in, in evangelization and taking the good news. Because now we're at a place in our church's life, we want to be thinking about what's out there. We're, I think we're solid about what goes on with what goes on here. We want to think about what goes on out there. And so uh, be praying for me and the elders as we prepare to preach through that. I'm excited. I've been studying for a couple months and love that book, love that gospel. And so I'm excited about that. Uh, and so we'll be praying for us, and today we'll be taking the Lord's Supper, so be cognizant of that as we work through the text and be preparing our hearts to come to the Supper, and, and, and not just see this as something we do, you know, we do it the first week of every month, and it's just kind of a thing we do, we check a box, it should never be about that. It should be a genuine reflection on the person and work of Christ, and the person and work of Christ in our own lives. What is he doing? Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to grow? Where does sin need to be put to death? All those things. And a great text this morning to be reflecting on that. So let us hear now the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 7. Very, very familiar text and a very difficult text. Where the inspired writer says, if I speak the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. I want you to feel these blows here. That Paul puts to us, love is patient. Have any impatient people here this morning? Don't lie. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And he goes on to say in verse 8, love never ends. Let's read the rest of that. As for prophecies, what a great thing, prophecy, right? They will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. But he goes back to say love never ends. This is the inspired and errant word of God. May he add his blessings to this reading of it and bind it to our hearts. Let's pray. God, what, an, what a glorious and awful text we have before us this morning. Glorious in what it says and awful in how it points out our inability to keep it. But glorious in that you give more grace so that we might keep it. So God, I pray you convict us and show us where we've fallen short of your glory with the matter of love within this body and without this body. God, convict us, put sin to death in us, Lord, work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to build your church so the gates of hell might not overcome it. Oh Lord, give us grace to love others as you've loved us. 
to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, prepare our hearts to take this meal this morning. Grow us, mature us, strengthen us, Lord. There, God, there be someone here, and I know there is, Lord. I know in this a crowd, even with these, this, these people, Lord, there's someone who does not know you. Lord, show them their need for a Savior. Open their blind eyes. Unstop their deaf ears. Draw them to yourself. And give them grace to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And one comes to the Father but by him. And, and work in them to set them free from sin and death, from themselves, God. To live for your glory. And we pray all this in the blessed and mighty name of our great Redeemer, Lord Jesus, the Christ. Amen. Well, this is a text that, as I said, is, it's familiar to us, right? If you're married, you probably got a cross-stitched picture with this verse emblazoned on it. I think we got like 17 of them. You probably may be re-gifted one of those some of these days. I don't know for sure. You'll have to ask Mrs. Robinson about that. But it's easy to understand, isn't it? And that, therein lies the problem. It's easy to understand, but it's, it's difficult, and I've called this devastating because it devastates us because it's so difficult to live out. I would argue impossible without God's grace to live out, just like the rest of the Bible. But this really gets right down to the brass tacks, doesn't it? This really shows our heart for what it really is. I mean, we've looked at it, and I appreciate the guys doing the, the Titus series. It was wonderful. It was needed. It was, thank you so much. I benefited from it. I was convicted. I hope the church did. Please go back and listen if you missed any of that. And so I would ask you today, since all that stuff is true, how do we love? That's called why I'm preaching this day. I'm not just doing this willy-nilly. How do we love? If we're that kind of church, if the church is the people of God, then how do the people of God love one another and love the world God has made? How do we love we're going to see how important it is because love and how we love and if we love, that tells us whether or not we're really part of the church to begin with, I'm going to argue. I mean, this is a sobering text. It's difficult because the Bible's most simple description of God himself and his self-description is what? And the, the, the culture love this. God is. I can't hear you. God is love. The culture knows that verse, right? I believe in a God of love. God is love. I believe in a God of love. Of course, it's true. How do we define it? I mean, love is the most blessed manifestation of God's character. 1 John 4.16 tells us that, and then 1.16b, the second part of that, continues. He says, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And that's the sobering part, right? God is love, and that's wonderful, but read on. The one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so we must believe that the simplest and yet most profound description of Christian character, how we live, is love. So that's why I'm calling this the devastating doctrine of love. But what does love mean? Because it appears that the love of God is the one thing every person in America can agree on. We don't agree on much. We all agree that God, if he's there, he's the God of love, right? I mean, how many times have you heard the most crooked politician, the most liberal pundit, or the most liberal pastor say, I just believe in a God of love? And maybe you've said, I just believe, and we do believe in a God of love, right? I mean, it, it appears that in our culture, we are particularly in love with the idea of love. We're in love with love, but what is love? What is it? 
I don't think we understand really what kind of love God demands or the kind of love that characterizes him. And I think that's what this text, what Paul is up to in this text. Because, you know, we tend to boil it down to a greeting card or some felt emotion. And yes, we do feel love. I'm not suggesting that we're reformed and we don't feel love. Well, boy, we need to check ourselves, don't we? We aren't reformed enough if we don't feel love. But we leave it there, I'm afraid. It's not just that, is it? It's a sappy Hallmark card, right, or a popular love song. We hear all the, all the time songs that sing about love. Now, I'm going to date myself here, but in my back in my era, which was a long time ago, I get that, but just, just humor me here for a minute. Just a few of the songs, they always grapple with love, right? My wife used to love love songs. Now she decided because I listen to 80s music once in a while. I hate love songs. I, I threaten my kids on long trips. I'm going to turn on the 80s if you don't. It gets them to behave, you know, instantaneously. But... We sing about love. What's love got to do with it? You know that song, right? And that'll be in your head the rest of the day. Good old Tina Turner. Love's a battlefield. I like that song because that person had to be married. Pat Benatar, she's been married a long time. She knows love's a battlefield, right? It is indeed. Love stinks. If you're heartbroken this morning, you know that's true. Love stinks. Love hurts. Sometimes it does. Love bites. Oh, yeah. Love somebody. Love is in the air. For our Pentecostal, I do something crazy right now. Love is in the air, but I'll, I'll, I'll refrain from that. All we need is love. I remember a TV show. That was the, the theme show growing up. All we need is love. It's the air we breathe. Love is easy like a Sunday morning. That guy's not a pastor. Sunday morning ain't easy. Or if you love somebody, set them free. I've never understood that. So if you love someone, divorce them. No, that's not right. But to grappling with love, right? What is it about love that we're so infatuated with? Well, because it's important. It's important for Christians, as Paul says here. And then there's my favorite 80s love song, I Want to Know What Love Is. And I tell the dude that wrote that, we're going to learn that this morning. I want to know what love is. Well, Paul's going to tell you right here. The guy who wrote that is now a Christian, by the way. That's completely free and just completely facile information that you did not need to know. I, I realize that, but he is. So he knows what love is. It's found in the cross of Jesus Christ. You know that already. But for all our talk about love, it's clear in our singing about love and our, our pondering love, pontificating on love, even in the church, our understanding of love barely scratches the surface. Because Paul makes clear, I think, in this text that tied to our definition of love and our commitment to acting upon the mandate, yes, the mandate, I use that word, forgive me, the mandate of love proves whether or not we are Christians at all. It proves whether our profession is true or false. You say, well, pastor, man, you've been out, you've been storing up, haven't you? That's really, really harsh. Well, no, that's just what the Bible tells us. I mean, Jesus told his disciples, oh, disciples almost shockingly, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. And if he stopped there, we go, okay, well, I'm, I'm working on it. But then Jesus says this. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. They'll know it by your, your sound doctrine, how many points you believe. Come on. Know it by your, tell me, your love. Jesus said they'll know whether you're my disciples not by whether you've gone to seminary or whether you don't like seminary or whether you anything. No, they're not by your love. Your love. 
So if our theology doesn't lead us to love, then our theology is faulty. Or we don't understand our theology. I think it's more like that. Jesus commands his love as I have loved you. It tells us that love is it's, it's infinitely Christological. It's bound up in the gospel itself. And for the Christian, it is not optional. It's not like we have sound doctrine, but no love. Well, no, you're a noisy, gong, clanging symbol. We're going to get to that here in just a moment. I mean, Jesus, by his indestructible life and his humiliation and his substitutionary death, has demonstrated for us how to love. Clearly, love is central to the gospel. It's a gospel issue. We want a gospel issue? Well, here it is. It's central to living a gospel-centered life. At the heart of the gospel is what? It's give and not get. We love to get. Man, I love to get things. You don't have to get things in the mail. I do. I like to track things coming to me, packages. I love to get. But central to the gospel and gospel love is give. It's the other guy is more important than I am. And therein lies the difficulty, isn't it? Because we love ourselves. The Bible even assumes we're going to love. Paul even assumes we're going to love ourselves. says marriage should look something like your love for yourself. Actually, love for Christ, but he, he refers to that. It's amazing, isn't it? Give and not get. And that seems to characterize the kind of Christian love which Christ commands and which Paul defines here in these verses. And it's devastating. It's devastating because, first, it describes a love in such a way that it becomes patently obvious that everyone talking about love ain't loving like the Bible teaches us to love. And two, it's devastating because it demonstrates the fallacy of a modern brand of Christianity that focuses on the good things, what we get as Christians, at the expense of the exclusion of the best thing, which is we give our lives in the service to others. We take up our cross and follow Jesus. That's what we're up to. That's what we're about. That's why my sermon title is what it is. It's devastating because it kills the old man. It, it kills our self-love, and we're full of self-love. Now let's get the context here as we walk through the passage, get our bearings here. We've jumped into the middle of this, of this epistle, sort of toward the end of the first letter to the, the church at Corinth. I mean, Paul's been addressing a church fraught with trouble. There's factionalism, or we might call it cliques in the church, sexual immorality, Profound worldliness, there's the arrogant abuse of spiritual gifts. And it turned this beleaguered church, one which Paul had himself founded in his second missionary, into a church of chaos. In fact, this church, most of us would have left this church a long time ago, right? I mean, we, unfortunately, a lot of times we can't even stay in a good church, and so there's no way we'd stay in this church, right? But Paul loves this church. Paul's not saying, you know what, you should leave that church. Paul's saying, I love that church. I'm going to correct that church. I'm going to write them a letter. I'm going to teach them theology. I'm teaching them how to love, right? Why? Because we, every church, don't we? We always need to be corrected. We all, I mean, we need the word of God. We need what Paul very clearly sets forth here. The, the church of Corinth was just a mess. It was a hot mess. But God loved that church and Paul loves that church. I mean, love was missing in the Corinthian church. They had spiritual gifts galore. They had right doctrine, I think. And back in 11, verse 2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain their traditions even as I delivered them to you. I, think their, I don't think their doctrine was, a, was askew. He said, because you've maintained the traditions. The theology I've taught you, you've kept it. But boy, you've made a hash out of applying it. And that's our problem, isn't it? That's always our problem in every age in the church, which is why we need the Word of God so desperately every day to speak into our lives. 
And the attribute that was most basic to Christian character was absent in the Corinthian church, and that is love. Because I think we know it's much easier to be orthodox than it is to be loving. It's easier to be active in ministry than it is to be loving. It's easier to display external godliness than it is to be loving. That's why the Pharisees were, they looked so righteous. And why we can look so righteous and why the Pharisees get so much ink because we tend towards Phariseeism. We look righteous, we must be righteous. No, Paul says, you'll have none of it. And so Paul reminds him of the first three verses. I have two main points and here's the first one. Love is better than spiritual gifts and martyrdom. Really? Really, Paul? Better than spiritual gifts and laying down your life for the cause of Christ? Are you crazy? Well, look where he starts. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, what does he say? I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm a cacophony of noise. I'm music without a tune. It'd be like me playing, standing up here trying to play the harmonica and singing for you. You, you. I could illustrate this. I'll spare you. Doug, if you're preaching, I know at this point you can help us with this, but I won't do that because you sing better than I do. You know, you rap at least, okay? But no, he says, love is to be desired more than eloquence or supreme spiritual giftedness. We love eloquence, don't we? A good sermon. Someone who speaks eloquently. I've heard someone talk about, man, he's so articulate. Articulate. He's so articulate. Or she's so, man, and, and we, we're persuaded, aren't we? And yet Paul said, if you have that, it doesn't, and you don't have love, it doesn't matter. If you speak in the tongues of men, you speak in smooth talk, and, and the, if you're articulate, and you know the tongues of angels, and you have not love, then that's just useless. And the tongues of angels here, I don't think he's speaking of some kind of ecstatic language that angels speak. That is, some, people, some Christians believe that. I think he's just, I think this is a deliberate exaggeration. Because what do angels say, what, what, what language do they speak when they show up in Scripture? They seem to speak in the vernacular, Right? They don't have their own language. I've heard, well, the devil can't understand the language. I don't know where they get that. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think we missed the point. But it's so we speak in the, the beauty, the beautiful speech of angels, and we're extremely articulate and eloquent, and we don't love, then it, we're just talking to ourselves. And then verse 2. He says, and if I have prophetic powers, he kind of ratchets it up here. If I, even better, prophetic powers. And understand all the mysteries and have all knowledge. Man, I'd like to have all knowledge, wouldn't you? I'd like to know things. So do you. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nada, nothing. Nothing. If I have superlative spiritual and intellectual capabilities, they come to nothing without love. What about prophecy? Well, in chapter 14, verse 1, Paul's going to admonish his readers to desire earnestly the gift of prophecy because the prophet proclaims God's truth to God's people. That's what I'm, I'm a modern day prophet. It's speaking God's word, right? It's not foretelling something that's going to happen, but the future, foretelling the future. It's, it's preaching God's word today, but I mean, Paul himself's a prophet. He would have held this gift in the highest possible esteem, and yet even this great gift must be administered in love. I mean, if you can preach like Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon or John MacArthur and you have not love, you're just giving a talk. And if I preach this morning this text, 
without love in my heart for you and for Christ, I'm just giving a talk. He says, what if we have mysteries? When you understand all mysteries, we have all knowledge. I mean, verse 9, Paul admits that we know in part, we prophesy in part. I mean, even a prophet or an apostle does not know all the mysteries of God's redemptive plan, especially in the Old Testament, right? It was, Revelation was unfolding, it was flowering, it was opening, it was budding. He didn't know all, everything, nor does a prophet possess all knowledge. I mean, come on, knowledge is a golden calf for many of us, right? If we're real honest, I know you, you like good books, you like to learn and Praise God for that. Man, I want the Christian mind to develop and flower in submission to the Word of God. But if we have that and we're brilliant and yet we don't have love, that kind of love he's going to explain here in a few minutes, over the next few minutes I might say, then it does not matter no matter how smart we are. All of our Sunday learning will profit us nothing. Nothing. It's worthless. If we have all spiritual gifts... Knowledge, it's worthless without love. And he says, these things are going to pass away. But love, what's going to happen? What's going to endure? Love's going to endure. That's why. These things are great, but the Corinthian church had, had settled for the good thing at the expense of the best thing. They didn't have love. They had spiritual gifts and good theology and all this stuff, but they just settled. You know, the Settlers commercials, the, I think it's Geico, has the, the old, I miss those. They were so good. You know, they showed like Little House on the Prairie, the Settlers. Don't be a settler. Settle for just a PhD in theology and church history. I'll just bring this to me. Don't settle for that because without love, it's useless and expensive. <laughs> so don't even think about doing it. Knowledge is a golden calf for all. So, so many of us, it's going to pass away, he said. Love is better than gifts or giftedness or knowledge. What about mountain-moving faith? Well, without love, he says the same thing. He dismisses it. I mean, all faith here refers to confidence in God's ability to do mighty things on behalf of his people. You're a person of faith. You trust God. I mean, the, Paul uses the same figure used on occasion by Jesus in Matthew 17, 20 here. I mean, the Lord's point to his disciples there is that by trusting him completely, nothing in their ministry would be impossible. You can move mountains. Faith that moves mountains. And Paul's saying, if you have that and it's not coupled with love, we dismiss that as well. It's a loser without love. Even if a person has this great degree of prayerful trust in the Lord, they look righteous, they seem righteous, but they're unloving, it'll be nothing. You can live the Christian life, it seems, without being a Christian. Get really quiet in here. How is that possible? We're going to see. I think that's what he's getting at here. Why this is sobering and again, devastating, revealing. Well, he goes on to verse 3. It says, if I give away all that I have, give to the poor. And if I deliver up my body to be burned. See, these are just greater and greater things, right? Okay, I've given away all I have. I'm not, not a person of faith. I give away all I have. And then I lay my life down for Jesus. But have not love, I gain nothing. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, persecution in the early church was intense and in some places was a quick way to fame. You want to be on the front page of the newspaper or your favorite blog, whatever now. I'm an old newspaper person. It's still on the internet. 
Martyrdom will get you there in the early church sometimes. And yet he says even martyrdom can be motivated by self-interest and pride. And when this is true, it loses any spiritual value it has. You're just committing suicide. I mean, you might as well. If it's not coupled with love, I can lay down my life for the cause of Christ and go to hell in the end. Wow, isn't that profound? Isn't that scary? I mean, none of us have laid down our life for the cause of Christ, right? So we better have love. Wow, that's his point. He's not exaggerating here, I don't think. And all these things will pass away. All these things, verse 8 says. And so to love is better than spiritual gifts and martyrdom. What does it look like? Well, that's the heart of the sermon today. And this is how we prepare our hearts for the, for the, the, the supper here. Verses 4 to 7. And I'm going to summarize it this way. Love displays the sweet fruit of what I'm going to call gospel humility. My son asked me here a few months ago, in life, what's the one thing in addition to God, I should pursue. And I think my answer shocked him. It was one word, humility. And he just looked at me. And then he got it. Because without humility, you don't have love, right? Humility. I mean, this is the part we usually find in the cross-stitch pictures hanging on our walls, isn't it? In these verses, Paul gives the all-important definition of love. This is how we do it. I mean, love is a noun, but love is a verb. Okay, we know, okay, love is a thing, but it's what we do. Most fundamentally. Love is, starts off with two things. Love is patient. Well, we're deep in over our heads already, aren't we? If my family could tell you what is my besetting sin, I think they would all agree if you could get all five of them to vote, they would say, dad is impatient. I don't like to wait. I don't like it when you're late. I don't like any of that. I don't like when people change. I don't like when they t- I have to tell them more than once to do something. I don't like that. I'm not patient. And I bet you're not either. I'm not patient. Not at all. I mean, here he has in mind long-suffering or long-tempered. And this is, this, this is usually, the, the, the Greek verb here is usually used to connote patience with people rather than circumstances. Okay, so we're, <laughs> we're, in, deeper, we're in deeper waters, aren't we, with people. Because you hear us say as ministers sometimes, it's easy for the people. Well, guess what? You're called to deal with people. And people are fallen and so are you, pastor, and so am I, pastor. Chrysostom, the great church father, said, It is a word which is used of the man who is, who is wronged and has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. Mm. He has it within his power to avenge himself when he's wronged, but he'll never, ever do it. Did Jesus have the power to avenge himself? He was encouraged, wasn't he? He didn't do it. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But patience never retaliates. It refuses to pay back evil for evil, right? It's patient. It's long-suffering. It's illustrated, I think, by the last words of Stephen in Acts 7. At the end of that long and and, and glorious passage, he says, Lord, when they're, they're stoning him to death, he's about to die, he says what? I'll get you. I'm going to get you. I'm getting down for you. I'm, I'm going I'm to get off of here. I'm going I'm to pay you back. God will pay you back. I might have said that. 
But he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What is that reminiscent of? Does that strike a chord for you, an echo for you? I hope it does. Because Jesus, as he was dying, said what? Man, I can't wait till judgment day. <laughs> you just wait. No, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, you're get, now we're getting at it here, right? Now we're getting at how we're supposed to love, how we're supposed to be patient with others. Are you patient with others? Are you patient when you're wronged? I mean, look at how God has been patient with you. I say this to myself almost every day when I'm impatient. And I pray this way, beat me patient like you're patient with me. Help me to be patient with difficult people because I'm a difficult person. And God help others to be patient with me as a difficult person because you've been patient with me and not, uh, and not just vaporizing me in a nanosecond, which you should do. Love is patient. Love is kind. The counterpart to being patient. To be, pay, to be kind is to be useful and serving and gracious. Matthew 5, 40, 41, Jesus said, If anyone wants to, wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Of course, God is the supreme model. What does he say in Romans 2, 4? Paul reminds us, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you take that lightly? God's forbearance with you, his patience with you, his kindness toward you, not knowing that his kindness, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. You weren't born saved, were you? I mean, I think of a time in my life, a younger life, that when I was wandering so far from the fold of God, if I had died, I don't know what would happen to me. I think of the egregious sins I committed. And I think of how patient God was with me. I was wholly unlovely, and yet he loved me in the way we're called to love others. I mean, it sometimes shocks me to think about because I know, I know what I did. I know what, who I was. I was there the whole time, you know, <laughs> my heart. And yet God had mercy on me, just like he has you. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not. He goes into three things. It's not envious or boastful. Love neither breaks the 10th commandment or does it strut its accomplishments. What does envy do? Well, envy tempts us to put others down and boasting causes us to do what? Build ourselves up. We envy others, we put them down, we boast and we build ourselves up. This is the opposite of humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That should scare us to death. You want to slap letter with God? We'll be proud. God opposes the proud. He's the opponent of the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Mm. I think this is what Paul's getting at when he admonished us in Philippians 2 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's a hard, isn't it? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. The other man is always better than you, the other woman other person, count them as more significant than you. Their rights before your rights. Their preferences before your preferences. We love preferences in churches. We like to meet with the elders and talk about preferences, don't we? No, their preferences before your preferences. We would do well as God's people to understand that the other person, we, we live for God and the other person. Love to God, love to neighbor. And they go together, yeah, and one without the other, Right? 
Love is not envious or boastful. It's, it's not arrogant. It's literally puffed up. I think of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, you know. Look, look that up later if you know what that is. But the big old, he's all puffed up. And that's kind of the picture here, you know. It's all puffed up, all swollen up in pride. Arrogant. And I am arrogant when I forget the correct answer to the question Paul put to the church in Corinth back in, in four, chapter 4, verse 7. He says, what do you have that you've not been given? What do you have that you've not received? And it's received from above. What do you have? What do you have, Christ Fellowship? Nothing. How are you able to sit there and listen to me or ignore me? Whichever the case, God gives you that ability. How did you breathe just now? Well, you received it. How did you walk in here in that nice car you drove, the nice car I drove? I'm not putting down nice cars. I drive, yeah, where did it come from? God, every breath we breathe, every day we have on this earth, every minute is sustained and given by him. And he owes us nothing but his wrath. Nothing. Nothing, and I'm arrogant. We're arrogant, yet we're arrogant because we forget the answer. What do you have that you've not been given? And it manifests itself in different ways. We, we tend to be doctrinally arrogant. We tend to be doctrinaire in the Reformed community. Right? We believe the doctrines of grace, and you don't. And isn't that terrible that we think that way? Grace, <laughs> grace, we didn't get it, and yet we're arrogant about having it because we've forgotten that we've received it from above. Do you believe sound doctrine? It's because God gave you the ability to understand it and brought you in the realm of that by someone's preaching and teaching or some co-worker or some friend. In my case, it was a co-worker who was a pastor, who was an Anglican. I thought he was a weirdo. Now he's one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. I'm so thankful for him. But God brought him along. I look at those circumstances. They were crazy that I wound up there and then learned under him. It was amazing. And yet we're arrogant like we... We're arrogant toward those who do not agree with our theology. We kind of feel sorry for them. Or maybe they don't know as much theology as we do. We feel sorry for those people. <laughs> we say news what I did. And it's particularly a temptation, yes, during your seminary years. It was for me, guys. I know all about it. I'm not tweaking you so much as I'm tweaking me. I may be the doctrinal arrogant, doctrinaire man in chief. I'm guilty of this myself. I have been. I had to think about it. The doctrines of grace. Or we have spiritual arrogance. The Corinthians, they were experts at that. They're spiritual gifts. I speak in tongues. I prophesy. All those things were spiritually arrogant. Were, uh, think of Job's friends. They had good theology and what they do with it. They misapplied it. Job, you are suffering because you are a sinner. Just be like us and, and you, won't, you, you won't be suffering like that. Spiritually arrogant. Materially arrogant was a violation of James upbraiding the wealthy in James 2 for committing the sin of partiality. Partiality in any form is sin. There's all kinds of partiality in the culture. Always has been, always will be. It just takes different faces in different times. It's been what we're griping about. We're materially arrogant. Love, does, love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Some translations render this does not act unbecomingly. This is speaking of bad manners. Not giving thought to the feelings or the sensitivities of other people. It's careless, being careless, overbearing, crude, churlish. 
Corinthian, the, the Corinthian Christians were models of unbecoming behavior. 1 Corinthians 11, 21, during the Lord's Supper, Paul said, each man takes his own supper first. They're elbowing each other in the, for the front of the line, you know. One is hungry, another's drunk. They're getting drunk. They're going on a bender during the Lord's Supper. Boy, that's rude. That's rude. Getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. That's why we use grape juice, right? That's right. You can elbow each other in front of the line. We have no line. We give it out. But the Corinthians, they were doing this. They were rude. I mean, during worship service, they're trying to outdo each other in speaking in tongues. I mean, to be polite to another person, you say, well, that's just a, a preference. No, it's not. Because to be polite to another person is to treat them with a dignity that is an image bearer of God they fundamentally deserve. It's to honor them. And I'm going to say it. Southern manners help us here because I do think they came from the Bible. <laughs> the manners I was taught, that we've taught our kids. You want to get killed in my home? Just say, yeah, to an adult. That'll do it. Flat do it. <laughs> Even if they're not doing it from the heart, they better do it externally, right? I mean, I think a Christian should never be consistently rude or snooty or nasty toward others. If we're known for our nastiness, we have a love deficit. If we're always nasty, we roll up to the drive-thru, that teenager Poor zit-faced teenager got our order wrong. We're going to go in and give them what for, right? Because you don't get my fries wrong. <laughs> yeah. That's being rude. Teenagers, not teenagers, love to use the word rude. You're being rude. They're right. And some, a lot of the times they're right. So I hate it when they call me on it, you know. I'm the pastor. They're being rude. We should never be rude. And yes, I think you should honor others by saying yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and please, and thank you. I think that's biblical. It's got nothing to do with the South. Nothing whatsoever. Just being kind and treating others like image bearers. I mean, they deserve it because they're made in the image of God, no matter how they're treating you. So love is not envious or boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. Now we see verses 5, second part of verse 5 to 7, love's in action. Paul turns to the actions in which the fruit of love produces. First at the end of verse 5 and in verse 6, he tells us what love does not do, what actions it avoids. Love avoids four things. It does not insist on its own way. Love does not live for itself. Never, never, never. Love like Christ possessed toward the Father. That's what he has in mind here. And toward all whom the Father had given him, compelled Jesus to the cross. That's how we're to love. We never live for ourselves. Being set free from self to some degree is evidence that we are, in fact, Christians. And Paul says this, we, we're set free to live no longer for ourselves, but for God and for his glory. And that's loving others. Do you always have to have your own way? In everything, your restaurant to eat out, your, your way, your, your music in the car. First fighter had my wife with the music in the car. We were dug in. It was Kenny G versus Johnny Cash. I think I lost that one. Still don't like Kenny G to this day because of that. <laughs> but see, we were holy wedlock and soon become holy headlock. Why? Because we're sinners in close proximity to each other and we wanted what we wanted. We wanted it right now. Especially in the car on the way to New Orleans, a long ride. 
I paid her back. I took her to Hank Williams' grave and visited that. So we got a little bit of got a little bit of that culture. Got my licks in, right? And I probably listened to Kenny G the rest of the way, or whatever it was. I don't know. It was something like that. Love does not demand its own way. Think about your marriage, husbands, wives. Do you always demand your own way? Children, do you always demand you kick and scream and want your own way? I know you do, because I did. I was a kid, and I have kids. Do we demand our own way? In church, in a church, do we want it our way? I got to tell you, this church can't be my way. Do you know that? You probably think, well, he's the pastor. He gets everything he wants in the church. That's not true. I have preferences you wouldn't even like. You'd be singing out the hymnal for up to me, right? We'd just have the hymnal. <laughs> no, we can't have it our way. This is not McDonald's. Life is a McDonald's. You have it your way, right? Burger King, whatever. I think it's Burger King, whichever one. No, no, no. Love lays down its life for the other person. Love is not irritable. It's not easily provoked. New American Standard and others translated. Love guards against being irritated or upset or angered by things said or done against it. Irritable here, this is when we become upset by someone or some circumstance a lot of the time. When we're frequently upset by the unintentional actions of another person. It's unintentional, but we're annoyed by them. We're irritated by them. And we see this most in the mundane moments of life, such as personality times. We just don't like another person's personality. And and for honest, that's true, isn't it? We're just annoyed or irritated by someone. They talk too much. They talk too little. You know, they're tall, they're short, they're skinny, they're fat, they're whatever. They, we don't, we, they, just, they just annoy us. We're irritated at them, right? Love doesn't get irritated. And you're saying, are you kidding me? And I'm saying to you, that's what the Bible says. Thus saith the Lord. I'm awfully easily irritated. Wow. Love is not irritable. I mean, how do I respond to when I'm frequently the object of another person's impatience? My irritable, irritated toward them. Love does not take you into account a wrong suffered. This is, uh, this is uh, or love is not resentful, the ESV translates it. Or the old version, I think the King James renders it, does not keep a record of wrongdoings. I like that. I prefer that. Love does not keep a record of wrongdoing. The Greek word is legizomai, which means to reckon or account or impute, which is the word for the imputation of righteousness, accounted to be accounted righteousness that we receive to be saved. Right? Love does not impute sin to another person. Just as God pardons our sins, so this kind of love pardons the offenses of others. In other words, we're never being more like God than we are when we are forgiving another person from the heart. In fact, Jesus says over and over, and Paul says that if we've not, forgiving, not forgiven others, we've not been forgiven ourselves, we keep a record of wrongdoings, it's proof positive we have not forgiven them. We've not forgiven them. Maybe there's somebody you need to make it right with today before you take the Lord's Supper. Maybe there's right that needs to be wrong. Or you're keeping an account, right? It's like the, my old favorite show, Sanford and Son. Uncle Woody comes in. Tells to talk to Fred Sanford and says, you know, said, Esther's giving me an awful hard time, Fred. And Fred says, well, Woody, you need to tell her about it. And he said, Fred, every time I do, she gets historical. He said, don't you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. She reminds me of everything wrong I've ever done to her. Are we historical? Are we historical 
I'm afraid we are, aren't we? And yet, Jesus in Matthew 18, 22 says, forgive how many times? Seven times? It's pretty good. 70 times seven. Number of completeness, not 490 times. And 491, I'm going to withhold forgiveness. No, 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 no. Even my UGA math, I know how much that is. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, so yeah, It's completeness. Completely forgive as you've been completely forgiven. Because love covers a multitude of sins, Peter tells us. The writer of Proverbs, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Are you thin-skinned and easily offended? Get over yourself and overlook an offense. Christian, that's what, that's what Paul's saying here. Finally, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing or unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. The truth, not truth, but the truth, the body of truth, sound doctrine. Isaiah warns, Isaiah 50, or 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil and evil good, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. What this is is taking God's truth and turning it on its head. The culture does this, of course, with gender, right? I mean, transgenderism, it's just a turning God's truth upon its head. It's turning the created order on its head. Transgenderism, homosexuality, saying that is wonderful and ought to be celebrated. Pride month. For some of us, every month is pride month because we're proud, right? But not that kind of pride month. No. Love rejoices with the truth. We have to stand firm because love rejoices with the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, the truth that we see in society, right? We see it's best lived out. The gender debate, same-sex marriage, all these things we're being bombarded by now. Some of these lies about even ethnicity that divides us. I mean, there's new racism, and racism's always going to be a problem on every side until Jesus comes back, right? We don't rejoice at that. We never rejoice at that. Rejoice with the truth. That's what love does, right? I mean, he's not merely contrasting rejoicing with sin, but rejoicing in God's truth over and against falsehood. Love cannot tolerate false doctrine. Love, truth, and righteousness, they're all inseparable. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You've got to know his commandments to keep his commandments, right? So here's what love does as we, as we get to the end here and be preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Love bears all things. It does four things. That's what it doesn't do. Now here's what it does do. It bears all things. Fallen human nature has the opposite inclination to this. As social media every second demonstrates. We find perverse pleasure in exposing someone else's faults and failures. Social media has, has written this over the door of our, our culture, hasn't it? We love it when people lose. It's like the old Don Henley song, right? We love it. We love it when people lose. We just love it. And it makes gossip, for example, so appealing to us and such a struggle for many of us. I mean, Paul says, though, we can measure our love for one another by how quick we are to cover his or her faults, not trumpet them from the rooftop or for the Twitter top or Instagram or uh, whatever you use. Love certainly does not justify sin or compromise the false teaching. We're clear about that. But love, I mean, love warns and corrects and exhorts, rebukes and disciplines, but it does not expose or broadcast Failures and wrongs, not with, with glee. It covers and protects in the same way the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, which is what this word refers to, same word. 
It was a place of covering of our sin, of covering, protecting the seat of mercy. Mercy seat prefigured Christ's atoning death, which expiated or covered the sins of, his, of God's people. And what compelled Christ to it but love? And so love, by its very nature, is redemptive, not destructive. Love wants to buy back and not condemn. Be careful on social media. Even if it's someone you know who's a godless liberal who, boy, you love it. They got what was coming to them. Well, guess what? You didn't get what was coming to you, so let's stand down on that kind of talk. Right? Because we didn't get what was coming to us. We want to score one over on the libs, right? We want to get it. We want to get it. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Pray for the libs. <laughs> Pray for them. Pray for God's mercy. Because love is redemptive. It wants to buy back and not condemn. It feels the pain of those it loves and it helps carry the burdens of the hurt. Love also believes all things. It's not suspicious or cynical. It throws the mantle over wrong. It also believes in the best outcome for the one who has done the wrong. That the wrong will be confessed and forgiven and the loved one will be restored to righteousness. This is what church discipline is for. Not so we can broadcast, well, guess what they did, or he did, or she did. No, 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 it's for redemption. It's to, to be brought back, to believe all things. We ought to try to believe the best in everybody and others until we have reason not to. And yet we don't, we don't do that. We automatically impute the worst motives to everyone who seems to be against us. Have you noticed that? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, the pastor, I, we feel this all the time. Because in this culture, and really the last two years has gotten worse, people automatically assume that if there's a problem in the church, then these guys are the this guy, this is the problem. Sometimes it is. We agree. <laughs> We're fallen men. Boy, are we ever sinners saved by God's grace. But there's, there's a propensity to blame, always blame, you know, we blame every. Every ill in our society is the president's fault, whether he's a Republican or a Democrat or something else. We just, we blame others. We always want to blame, right? We always want to say, well, we, we assume the worst instead of innocent until proven guilty. Our culture now is being accused means you're guilty, period. The Twitterverse is full of that, right? He's accused, therefore he's guilty. So if we're waiting on the evidence to come in, guilty, 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 guilty. People are canceled, ruined all the time because they're guilty of some false accusation. It should never be that way. Love hopes all things. Number three, even when love, belief in a loved one's goodness or repentance has been shattered, they've not repented, love still hopes. When it runs out of faith, it holds on to hope. I mean, as long as God's grace is operative, human failure never has the final word. I mean, think about it. God would not take Israel's failures as final, right? God did not take Peter's failure as final. He was restored. God, or Paul would not take the Corinthians' failure as final. Trust me, brothers and sisters, there are more than enough promises in Scripture to make love hopeful, even in the worst circumstance. Even in the most lost cause, there's enough promises here. There's enough grace in God, enough power in God to make us hopeful that one day things will be better for this person or these people. And so we pray and we hope. I mean, when our hope becomes weak, we know that our love has become weak. For finally, love endures all things. This is a military term. It signifies an army holding a vital position at all costs. This is like the 101st Airborne at, 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 um, at the Battle of the Bulge. 
When Anthony McAuliffe famously said, the commander of the 101st Airborne, the Germans, demanded surrender, you're surrounded, and they wrote a letter to him, and he wrote back a letter that had one word. What was that word? Nuts. It means no. We're all going to surrender. My dad, who was part of the 101st Airborne, was there. My dad said, the 100 Airborne's only supposed to be, we're supposed to be surrounded with the Airborne. That's why we're there, right? The first place. It's like David Taylor. You're supposed to be in a fire, right, David? That's what love does. It won't give up hope. It keeps on hoping. That loved one, that son or daughter that rejected Jesus, the Jesus you love, the Jesus you taught them, keep hoping, keep praying. That friend, I've got a friend I've been praying for him for 27 years. He's lost. I pray for him every, almost every day, every week. I pray for him over and over and over. I'm so hopeful because he has life, he has breath in his, his person and, and God's grace is enough for him because it was enough for me. Love endures all things, right? It holds fast to what it loves. It endures all things at all costs. It does not surrender. It stands against overwhelming opposition, refuses to stop bearing or believing or hoping. In other words, love will not stop loving. Oh, boy. Transition to the supper now. So those are gonna, who are going to pass out the supper and workers, you can get ready for that. We're just going to go right into that. No need for another sermon. What do these attributes describe? This kind of love. Love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love is patient, kind, long-suffering, does not keep in account wrong doings. What does that describe? What does it look like? Does it describe you? No. Does it describe your pastors? No. Does it describe Jesus? Oh, yeah. Yes, it does. This is the love of Jesus. Because if you feel hopeless in keeping these commands and loving this way, there's grace for you because Christ, that's precisely the way Christ loves us. The Christ we're going to see pictured in this supper this morning. This Christ loves us this way. He loves us like that. And he loved us in his life, his ministry, and he loved us on Calvary. They're part and parcel of living a gospel-centered life because we can love others because he first loved us, right? We can love him, but we can love others. We're enabled on some level to do this by his grace and for his glory, knowing that when we fail, we have forgiveness. There's, that there's forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? We've been forgiven. We prove our love to God when we love our neighbor, and that is often costly. It's devastating. Because for us, it's very demanding to love this way, isn't it? I mean, I'm tired just from preaching it. Okay, I'm always tired. But it's, it's, it's devastating because it, it, it puts us to death. When we come to the cross of Christ, there really are two deaths, right? There's, there's the death of Christ and the death of us. Because in the cross of Christ, he was killed for us and our old self. When we come to him, our old man is crucified with Christ. And so when we come to Christ, there is a killing. It's devastating to us. It's devastating to a sinful Jeff. And sinful Doug, and sinful Clay, and sinful Robert, and sinful Monica. And so it's devastating because it kills us, it devastates us, right? This is the love that devastated us, that killed us, and enables us to love others this way. It's devastating to our pride, our selfishness, our self-love. But it's impossible to live out because without God's mercy, right? It was the kind of love that was at the heart of Christ's humiliation, his sacrificial love. It was the model for us. So this morning we come to this meal, and I want us to think about how we've not loved and to repent of that and ask God to enable us to love this way. Why do I say that? Well, 1 John 3, 15, 
look at a couple of verses here to meditate on the, on, the, on the meal here. Scripture tells us God is love and he defines love for us. Here's the definition of love. By this we know love. There you go. Bible's definition of love. That he laid down his life for us. That is Christ. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's it. In all these things, love hopes all things, believes all things, etc. and so on. That's laying down our lives for others, right? And that's the proving ground for love to God. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. By this, the sort of, this sort of love, our Christian profession is proven to be authentic. I mean, 1 John 4, 7, John uh, goes on to say, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So this meal this morning, we see pictured God's love for us, don't we? We see what Jesus did at the cross of Christ. Now this meal, of course, doesn't confer righteousness to us. It's not magic. You don't take the bread and become magically saved, magically born again. We don't believe that, do we? But it's a commemoration of that love with which he loved us and enables us to love the way Paul and John speak of here. That so this morning we remember that. This meal, you say, well, boy, I'm not taking this supper now because it's probably for perfect people who've always loved this way. I have good news for you. This meal is for sinners saved by God's grace who don't love perfectly but want to love perfectly, right? Who don't love perfectly. Who this week kept a record of wrongdoing against their children or their parents, or their in-laws, or one of their friends, or a fellow church member. But they sought forgiveness. They sought shelter in Christ. And this is a picture of that. So it's, for, it's not for perfect people. It's for sinners made righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're, a, if you're outside of Christ, then this meal's not for you. Repent of your sins and come, come take it another time. We'd love for you to come to Christ and come take that meal with us at some point. It's a family meal. We'll take it together as I, as I signify, taking the elements together. I want you to think about the love of Christ here. And if you're living in some kind of open, unconfessed sin, then you should not take this. Go, repent. Repent of the sin and take it, or just go and make it right. Maybe you're not, well, you've been so unloving that you've got to make it right with somebody. And you don't want to repent right now even, maybe. Your heart's heart, heart is hard toward this and you know, repent and then come take this another time because the Bible's made, uh, Scripture tells us there, there's a, a wrong way to take the meal that can lead to judgment. And we don't want that for you or uh, our church for sure. But this is a meal for God's people. And we see in it the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood, which watches us clean for all of our unlovingness. And then we'll pray and we'll give out the elements and we'll take these and we'll be done. Father, we thank you that we're not saved because we've kept 1 Corinthians 13 perfectly. Because I probably violated that when I got out of bed this morning. But God, we're thankful that as is pictured in these elements, in the broken body of Jesus, in the shed blood of, of our Lord, there's a picture of our sins that have been washed away. Oh God, give us grace to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, do it. Help us to be other-centered, not self-centered. To demonstrate love for others, selfless love, and not love to self. Oh God, we can only do this by your grace, only by the power and the strength that your spirit gives in us. So nourish us afresh of this meal for your glory. For Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.